Uh, Julie and I yesterday went um, walking uh, on the nature reserve that's just behind the, the uh, school here in the late afternoon and it was stunningly uh, beautiful. The sky was purple, there were sort of bold splashes of orange and deep indigo in, in the sky. Uh, the, the snow-covered ground in the fading light was sort of going blue. The trees stood out like frozen ghosts. And it made our hearts praise God. And then as we were walking along, um, we met a, a friend of ours who also was eulogising about the snow, but he also said something else. He said that he loved the way that this um, uh, period of snow had created community. He said people are talking to each other, they're smiling, they're joking, they're helping one another. He said it reminded him of his childhood in the 1950s. He was articulating something which is very real in our society. Over the last 50 years or so, there's been a whole set of attitudes and habits that have grown up in Britain which have actually deeply impoverished our experience of community. Today we live in isolation in our homes. We drive alone to work, which is miles from our home. We interact with colleagues who we never see at any other time apart from the Christmas party. Um, Parents and grandparents are a long journey away. We just see them on occasionally on high days and holidays and increasingly people say there is no such thing as local community. Our community today is our friends on Facebook or Twitter or even occasionally we meet them. And that's lovely in some senses. But it seems to me the disciplines of getting along with people from different backgrounds, of helping other people, of, uh, and who are quite different from us, not least maybe different generations, those disciplines are much weaker today in our society. And um, in the midst of that, we've become more and more reliant on professionals. Home helps and community nurses look after the old lady up the street. The neighbours don't look in to check up on her. If the car won't start, we call the AA. We just don't know people well enough to know who's got a jump lead up and down the street, do we? If some youths are making trouble, of course, we call the police. We can't go and have a word with their parents. We don't know them. And those attitudes overflow into the church lives of Christians. That's what I want you to see. The most popular kind of church in our country these days, the most, most attended uh, kind of church, is the large one today. And that is becoming more and more pronounced. And there are some good reasons, I'm sure, why um, uh, people like Uh, large churches, but I am worried that there are also some bad ones too. Just in case you think I'm uh, um, uh, hurling missiles over the fence at other people, 
um, surprising as you might find it on our slightly reduced numbers uh, today, we are on the edge of being classified by sociologists as a larger church. We are starting to experience some of the uh, aspects of larger church. And in such situations, you see, just like in the outside world, it becomes possible really to only interact with your friends. It's very easy, very easy in, the, in, in Maudley Road as it is now, to not really know the person next door to you any better than you know the neighbour. And of course, large churches provide a professional service. There's a staff team. They do it properly, like the community nurse or the AA man or the, or, or the policeman. Increasingly, we don't routinely turn to one another. We turn to the professional. And attractive as that may be in certain respects, it's actually rather sterile. That's what our friend who we met on the nature reserve was alluding to. He uh, was rejoicing because suddenly, in this local community, there was a sense of community. You know, a group of us push a car up the hill together. And uh, the driver of the car, who knew, normally only scowls at me or, and would never ask for any help, says, thank you, I'm amazed. Several of us go into a deserted house that we know belong, uh, belongs to an old lady who's gone to live with her daughters and sort out a burst pipe. And for a moment, you see, because there's no plumber and no AA man to rescue you, community exists. And that kind of community was absolutely in the DNA of the early church. Not by historical accident or, or just because of the culture that they lived in. It was fundamental to their understanding of who they were. They were not a group of individuals led by professionals. They were the body of Christ. They were people who, who served together in an interrelated way and, and, and loved one another across all sorts of barriers. That, that, if, if, if it's one thing that we have learned in these studies of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, I think it's that and I want to just remind you of that as we get into this passage and alert you to it. Remember 1 Corinthians 12 where, where, where Paul described the rich variety of gifts that people have and no one is to, st to, to not use their gift. No one is to be left out. No one is to absent themselves. They are to use their gifts together so that they function as a body with multiple organs. This is something that is, it must be central to our life as a church, not just during the snow. And then remember 1 Corinthians 13, it's not by accident that the Apostle has this, has this great 
um, um, uh, little section on love. Love must be the glue that binds this community together. Love, he said, is absolutely essential. If you don't have it, actually you can't call yourself a Christian. Love is, love is complex and costly and demanding. It is a passionate commitment to the good of, of, of other people we saw. And love actually endures. And so it's in that context that he then starts to speak specifically about these two um, gifts, these two miraculous gifts that God gives to his people and was giving to the church in Corinth. Tongues and prophecy. The first thing that uh, we need then to notice this morning is that tongues and prophecy, those two um, gifts, are to be used in the community. Look at uh, verse uh, 26, for instance. What shall we say, brothers, when you come together? Everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an, imp- uh, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. He broadens it beyond those two specific things that, he, that he's... Um, uh, that he's talking about, and he says, you know, you may may bring a hymn, you may you may may bring some some bit of teaching, you may bring all sorts of things to the church as a whole. Now we we try to in our total life here to to to, to encourage that sort of every member ministry in all sorts of. Uh, of different ways. It won't look quite like it did in Corinth and as we've got a little bit larger, particularly this meeting, is not quite perhaps as participatory as it was uh, ten years ago. But we do try and make sure there are multiple people up the, uh, up the front um, e- even now. And other aspects of our life we self-consciously encourage and emphasise to make sure that there is a participatory feel to the life of the church. We made the gathering, the evening, our evening smaller time, um, interactive for that reason. We strongly encourage you to be involved in home groups, um, again, which is, which is a, a, a much more interactive time. And uh, uh, that e- even here on a Sunday morning, the people who come up the front are not some sort of professional elite Even the preaching, um, though I do the lion's share of it, every year we, ha- we use a number of other people from within the church and people deeply appreciate it. There may be ways in which we can become more participatory as a church. You may have things that you, uh, you would love to see us do. Then mention it to us. Because um, if we are not the body of Christ functioning together, each bringing what the Lord has given us to the table. We are not functioning properly as a church. That's the first answer to uh, that question, but uh, Paul emphasises a second answer. Prophecy and tongues, these two gifts are to be used 
in an orderly way. Yeah, community it may be, with multiple gifts it may be, but it is not an anarchy, a local church. It just will not work if it, uh, if it tries to function anarchically. Tongues, he says, are to be used really quite carefully. Verse 28, for instance, he says, there must be an interpreter. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. We saw last week that tongues are primarily for, for, for the person's own encouragement. And uh, though they may have some value in the church as a whole, they have zero value if there is not some, some, some cognitive communication that can come out of it and interpretation therefore is absolutely necessary. Otherwise, just use it in private. Um, and uh, if there are interpretations, nevertheless, only two or three should, um, uh, should exercise that gift at a time. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. So, Paul is laying down, laying down some sort of careful controls on the use of tongues. Um, you, you will be aware, if you've been here for, for some time, that tongues is not uh, a significant part of our Sunday morning worship as a whole. Um, there are, there are a number of people that I know of, and no doubt others as well, who, for whom tongues is a part of their personal and private worship. Um, but it is not a part of our public worship and that intentionally. It's, it's not forbidden. Um, Paul's quite clear about that. Verse 39, do not forbid speaking in tongues, he says. But we don't actively seek it as if it would uh, greatly enhance our gathered public worship. It's actually not mentioned in other in letters to other churches, for instance, only in Corinth, it seems likely that it appeared here and there in different churches, and in which case it was not to be forbidden and to be regulated, but uh, it doesn't seem to have been a prominent part of the early church's life in all its variety. And Paul makes it quite plain in verse 19 that it's of... of very, very limited value. In the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He said, consider it the comparative value of tongues and intelligible speaking is like this, he's sort of saying. You know, you've got 5p in one hand and you've got 100 pounds in another. And a frugal and sensible person will value that 5p. It's of value. But everyone will watch out what they do with £100. That's the sort of value. He doesn't want to completely denigrate tongues. But he wants to say, let's get it in proportion, at least for public worship. So if you came to me and you said, can we have tongues, please, in in our, uh, in our, on our public worship. Can, can we permit it? I would say, 
I would say, by all means, in principle. There are lots and lots of good things that we could, we could do here and uh, that we should do here and that, that is in principle one of them. But we must make sure that there is going to be an interpretation. Um, and I'm not going to lose any sleep if it continues not to be part of our public worship. Maybe it's of more help in the smaller groups that we have in the church where there can be interaction and it, it, it is more private. It's just not central in the New Testament for the church when it meets publicly. And then um, as Paul um, advises then he begins to talk about prophecy. Prophecy too must be dealt with in a similarly orderly way. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what, it, what, what is said. Just, just two or three people, not a hubbub of people, even amongst prophecy, which Paul is wanting to encourage as a, as a highly valuable part of corporate life. And um, prophecy is not infallible. Someone may stand up and say, I feel the Lord is saying this, and a church's response should be, okay, we hear that, we will weigh it carefully. Do you see that in verse 29? Others should weigh carefully what is said. And then in this context of, de- of handling uh, uh, prophecy, um, Paul comes up with one of his uh, more controversial statements um, uh, from verse 34 onwards. He begins to speak about the role of women in this context. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. And uh, many uh, interpreters have suggested that that is absolutely clear. Women should not speak. Kitty should not have been up the front here just a little while ago. Um, uh, But actually, not only does that not fit with the general tenor of the New Testament, it doesn't even fit with Paul's uh, letter to Corinth. If you just glance back with me to uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, for instance, another place where he's talking about the role of women, And in verse 5, he speaks about a woman who prays or prophesies. So, uh, in other words, public prayer and and public um, uh, inspired insight into what the Lord would, would say to us today as a church is absolutely permitted, expected of women. In, the, in, in public gatherings. So, um, it, it, it's very unwise then to interpret this, these statements in 1 Corinthians 14 as if they forbid speaking in uh, public worship. 
Others have said, well, that just sets up a complete contradiction then, doesn't it? Perhaps the answer is that either that Paul's completely inconsistent and we just uh, pick and choose what he, um, uh, what he says, or that perhaps even it is, it is a later scribal edition that um, has somehow slipped into, uh, um, into this text because someone later on wanted to ensure that women never, ne- never spoke. Both of those things have been suggested, even by evangelical interpreters of the Bible, but they, they really don't bear the weight of evidence. There is no indication, for instance, that Paul is um, completely inconsistent. It is not um, difficult to, to get a co- consistent and coherent, coherent understanding of what the Apostle Paul says. It may not be an understanding that we like, but it is coherent. And there is no scribal evidence or virtually no scribal evidence to suggest that, uh, early manuscript evidence to suggest that this was added later. We must deal with this as the Apostle says, says it in the wider context of what he teaches. And taking into, that wider, into account that wider context, particularly 1 Corinthians 11, it seems that there is a, a better way of understanding it seems most likely that Paul is is, is, uh, um, saying that women should be silent in the context of weighing and judging prophecies. Do you see that? Um, If we we read it just just excluding some of the asides that that he makes, two or three prophets should speak, others should weigh carefully what is said, and he says a few other things, and then he says, for as in the, uh, all the congregations, the women should remain silent in, in the churches. It's perfectly possible to, to think that this silence is in that specific context. Hence, when he says, if they've got a question to ask, they should do it in private. I.e., you know, if they're challenging that, they have the right to do so, but not as if they are authoritative arbiters of what the church will ultimately decide about the value of that. Now, of course, some people are never going to be happy with that. Some, some people just, just, just find it impossible to, to accept any sort of significant gender distinction in, in the New Testament and are, are horrified by these admonitions, which is not just here, but, and not just with Paul, but but all over the place in the New Testament. All I would say to, to them is that it is very difficult to read Scripture fairly and not come to some conclusion that there is a difference of role between men and women. Of course, others overinterpret what the New Testament says. They are inclined towards the women should remain completely silent end of the, uh, of the, of the spectrum and there has been an awful lot of uh, male oppression and failure to use the legitimate gifts of women down through the history of the, of the church as a result and we must not do that. Let me just explain 
where, where we as a church in terms of uh, policies stand um, on this area and you can talk to me more afterwards if you want to. We take the line that what the, the best way of, of interpreting the, the New Testament um, teaching about the role of men and women is to understand the, uh, the idea which could be summarised in the phrase families need fathers. The Church of God is a family. It is a local family. And in the same way that families are supposed to function with uh, husband and wives jointly as heads in one sense of that family but with husbands taking that sort of overall responsibility for, uh, for, for the family. So it seems that the New Testament describes the church in a very similar way. And the fathers are crucial. They're called elders. Hence, the qualification for an elder is built partly on them having proved themselves as a father. And then, it, it, it is in that context that everybody functions as the family of God. And just as in a healthy family, um, uh, uh, that doesn't mean that people are forbidden from lots and lots of roles in the, in, in the life of that family and that wives are somehow subjugated by their, their husbands. So that shouldn't be the case within a modern church. But churches do need fathers. They need mothers as well. Um, but the role of elder seems to be a paternal role. So we say, and uh, it's written in our constitution in fact, that elders should be male, and, uh, but, but that all other roles can be um, given to men or women as, as, as is appropriate, and that um, we will function in a way that uh, women do not become elders or assume the role of an elder. In practice, for instance, to give you an example of what that might mean, let, let's, let's think of the issue of preaching, where, as we said last week, in some senses, there's a, there's a chunk of prophecy often in, a, in, in good preaching. And um, uh, we, we would say, actually we do not bar the women from a teaching role in the church. In the same way that, as I've already said, we have a variety of other people who aren't elders who preach sometimes. We would, though, draw the line at someone assuming a, a prominent preaching role, a preaching role of the degree of prominence that they were they were naturally assuming more than just the responsibility for teaching on an individual sermon, but an overall leadership role. Whether we like it or not, when I preach, it's slightly different from when one of the Spurgeon's group in the summer preach. And so we, we draw that distinction. 
to how it functions. And in that sense, we seek to model a family life together. Now, you may not agree with that. You may, you may want to strongly dissociate yourself from that. Um, uh, that doesn't mean to say that you have to leave the church um, uh, in any way but you would need to be able to work under the authority of leaders who function in that way. So, here in 1 Corinthians 14, then, what Paul is saying, I think, is that the weighing, the the judging responsibility, the ultimate responsibility for weighing carefully what is said uh, is to rest with elders, let's put it in that way. And others can speak and contribute and ask questions and so on, but the ultimate responsibility for, for understanding what God is saying and providing spiritual leadership to a local family of God lies with elders. So, tongues and prophecy are to be used in an orderly manner, Paul is saying. He is steering, it seems, between anarchy and and an overly authoritarian, professionalised type of leadership. He's saying everybody can contribute. Everybody brings things to the party. Everybody has gifts. But there is a healthy structure to the life of a healthy church. And it needs that structure and that orderliness in order to function well, just as a body does. And they are to be used for building up the church. Verse 26, did you see at the end? Everyone has a hymn or instruction or a revelation or a tongue or interpretation. These must be done for the strengthening of the church. It's a particular word that Paul uses for, to, for which is used for building buildings. And he has used it a number of times in 1 Corinthians 14 already. Verse uh, 3. Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, that is for their building up encouragement and comfort. Or verse 5, he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified, as um, the NIV has translated it, but it's for, for that, so that the church may be built up. Or verse 12, you're eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Build up the church, build up the church, he says again and again and again. Some people react against that. They say, well, well theory means he's a terribly sort of narrow vision, isn't it? Most of my life is spent serving God out in the world, out in the, out in the wider world. Why is Paul so obsessed with building up the church? Well, that's to, that's to misread the Apostle here. He sees this gathering as the lifeblood of all of our lives glorifying God in the wider world. We cannot do it alone. 
We must live as community. We must bind ourselves together in mutual service and love and commitment. Not, not circling the wagons to shut out the world, but linking arms in a circle facing out to serve the world and to speak to the world. If you are a Christian here, then whether you recognise it or not, the centre of your life is the people that you gather with regularly, every week. The New Testament does not anticipate a person who will somehow be a Christian and not linked into a local church. They do not exist according to the New Testament. This is your lifeblood. This is where you are empowered, encouraged, strengthened to serve the Lord in his world. And the gifts that you have been given by God are for everyone here so that they can serve a much wider group and display the glory of Jesus. Our world does not have that. In an earlier age, perhaps, local communities had some sort of approximation in terms of their commitment to one another and their support for one another. But it has almost completely evaporated now, except for when the snow comes down. But this is what it means to be human, living in a community like this. And the world knows that and longs for it. There's one thing that we have learned that I want to encourage you to take into 2010. It is that the gifts we have, the character of our lives, the way we spend our lives, must be community-based. Perhaps in the past, for instance, the church relied on staff more than it should have done. You just can't do that. We need to have a vibrant community life together. Who is going to help me? The reverent one another. Who's going to encourage me? The vicar of Christ, your neighbour, your Christian neighbour. Who's going to teach me? Well, maybe I'm gifted to some extent in helping you in that. 
but another house group member may teach you better one to one we must live as the body of Christ in 2010 not just when the snow comes down but for the whole year